College faculty sometimes complain that many of the first-year students who enter their courses are not college-ready. In this episode, we examine strategies that can be used to ease this transition and help ensure that our courses are student-ready. Thanks for joining us for Tea for Teaching, an informal discussion of innovative and effective practices in teaching and learning. This podcast series is hosted by John Keane, an economist, and Rebecca Mushter, a graphic designer. Together, we run the Center for Excellence in Learning and Teaching at the State University of New York at Oswego. Our guest today is Natalie Hurley. Natalie is a New York State master teacher and a 2018 NNSTOY STEM fellow who teaches high school mathematics in the Indian River Central School District in Watertown, New York. Natalie was also one of our students here at SUNY Oswego. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Today's teas are, Natalie, are you drinking any tea? I am. I'm drinking a peach tea because it's warming up outside and I want to feel that warmth. That sounds right up John's alley. And I am drinking a ginger peach green tea. I knew there'd be peach. It's almost like you guys coordinated. I have Irish breakfast today. No Scottish? I am almost out of the Irish breakfast, and then we will move on to a different container. Move down the empire and (laughs) (laughs) head back to your English breakfast in the afternoon. Okay. We've invited you here to talk about the transition between high school and college. Could you first tell us a little bit about the courses that you teach? I teach high school math, and I have a pretty nice spectrum. I teach Algebra 1, Calculus, and Pre-Calculus. I'm in my fifth year of teaching Pre-Calculus and Calculus, and I have taught Algebra 1 eight years. Excellent. What were your majors in college? So I was a math major from the get-go, and then I had this fantastic professor who helped me find my love of economics. His name is Professor John Kane, and he's here with us too. And (laughs) then once I started to find my love of economics, I picked up a minor in it. Unfortunately, it was too late in the game to pick up a double major, but the minor was great too. And we did talk a little bit about you going on to grad school in economics. And I was a little disappointed that you didn't, but then I thought you could do a lot of good in the school system. So one of the things we wanted to talk to you about is the differences between your experiences in college and the way you teach your classes now. Could you talk a little bit about some of the differences between what you observed as an undergraduate student and the way in which you teach now in secondary school? Yes. So there are definitely a lot of differences, although I try to definitely keep that idea of college and career readiness being wholesome in my classroom. I remember in college, it was a lot of lecture style, a combination between very, very large classes of hundreds and My math classes were usually pretty small, less than 20 generally. In my classroom, in a non-pandemic year, I have somewhere between 15 and 20 students usually. Of course, now we're doing cohorts, so I have a class as small as two and another class as large as 13 is my largest class on Thursdays and Fridays. So I just remember in college, a lot of lecture style. The teacher talks, you write notes. 
you can ask questions, but it's very much like you raise your hand, the teacher calls on you, you can ask a question. In my classroom, it's more a conversation about math, whereas I'm leading them to discover the math hopefully on their own with a little bit of questioning from me to lead them there. There's a lot of, in a non-pandemic year, think pair shares or working in groups or talking it out with their partner or somebody that they sit near, things like that. That's a little bit harder to do these days, especially when I only have a class of two and they're sitting six feet away from each other or more. Everything's a think pair share. (laughs) Right. (laughs) So yeah, and as I grow and I become more seasoned, it becomes more student-centered and less about me than it had been before. So I wanted to put the students in the center. Whereas when I was there, it was very much the teachers up there telling you how to do it. And then this is how you do the calculus. And then this is how you do Calc 2. This is how you do Calc 3. And they just show you and you find your study groups and then you work with each other after class as opposed to in class. So that seems to be some of the differences. I remember in college, just a lot of rote memorization. Know these words be able to regurgitate this proof, things like that. Now, in my classroom, and really the focus of high school math, and really all math through the Common Core Standards, is that deep understanding, getting to the core and understanding vertically what number sense and number theory is throughout all the grade levels. It sounds like you've incorporated a lot of evidence-based practices into your own practice, which we encourage all of our faculty, even at the college level, to do as well. We hear a lot of faculty complaining about students not being college-ready, and maybe that's because there's still a lot of lecture and memorization, and we want to keep changing that. What are some ways that we can become more student-ready and bring students in? I think it's very important that colleges understand what it's like in the high school, how teachers are teaching, what they're teaching. I'm in my ninth year, and the next year, we'll start to move into the next gen math standards, and then that's going to be the third set of standards. And I think it's really important for college professors at all levels to be able to understand what do these standards look like for these kids, and how do I need to change what I'm teaching to adapt to that? I recently had a very informal discussion with the master teacher program and SUNY professors at SUNY Delhi about their math and science curriculum. And there was just a lot of surprises on both ends about what's being taught, what isn't being taught anymore, emphasis on the calculator. Standards now are being written so that there's a lot of calculator use and students are losing a lot of their number sense because you don't need to know how to add and subtract, multiply and divide fractions when you get into high school because you have a calculator that's going to do it all which turns into a lot of button pushing. But that's definitely going to have a trickle-down effect into, or trickle-up effect, I guess, in college when these students get there and they're so used to being fully dependent on calculator and technology use, which is great if you're a college that also promotes that. But some colleges may also still say, hey, we want to limit technology. Since you were in college, I think much of our teaching has changed. I know in my own department, Most of us were doing a lot of lecturing when you were a student, and there's been a pretty steady transition away from that. And that's been true in many departments, including our math department. That's great to hear. But we still see a lot of lecture. And one of the things we're hoping is that perhaps the experience of the transition to remote instruction has encouraged more people to try some new approaches to teaching and learning. 
We have definitely seen that in the high school. A lot of teachers who were behind the ball as far as utilizing technology in their classrooms, it's been forced to become great at it literally overnight. So I guess if there's a silver lining to all of this, that is definitely key right there. I think something that's extremely important in high school is making connections to real world, making everything very real life. How am I ever going to use this in real life? And making sure that that is evident in the student learning. And I don't teach in a college. I haven't been in a college in 10, 15 years. But I think that if you wanted to be more student ready is also connecting all of your curricula to career readiness. Students want to know, why am I taking this class if I'm going to be a librarian or if I'm going to be a social worker? So just being able to bring those connections to them could also help colleges be more student ready. Just that relevance alone is more motivating to get students excited about topics. So finding ways to connect to students, no matter the level, high school or college, is a really great way to bring them in and bring them along. One of the challenges I know in economics we face is with students saying, I'm just not very good at math or I have trouble with graphs. And I suspect maybe you might have seen a little bit of that too. How do you address that issue of a fixed mindset concerning students' ability to engage in mathematics? In my calculus and pre-calculus classes, and you'll be even surprised to hear it that I do hear that there, but it's extremely prevalent in Algebra 1, that idea of my mom wasn't good at math, so I'm not going to be good at math. I've always had math support, AIS, or I've been able to get through because I've always stayed after with the teacher. I definitely still hear that, but the idea is to kind of break that mold by saying, hey, listen, this is a new year. This is a new teacher. This is a new curriculum. Maybe this is going to be the one for you. I find a lot of students struggle through geometry. So as soon as I bring up geometry, it's like, oh, no, I don't want to. And I say, listen, let's connect it to algebra then. Do you feel more comfortable making the connections to algebra? Or I don't even know. I don't know how to tell them that you can be better. Maybe you had a bad teacher. Maybe you had a teacher who didn't make things relevant for you or just some bad experiences. But every year's a new year. I've seen all sorts of success stories of students who truly find their niche late in high school math. So in my class, I've definitely adopted the idea of a growth mindset, and I've been studying on best practices to help do this, and part of that has been through standards-based grading. I'm kind of a beginner, a novice of standards-based grading, more of a cafeteria. I'm choosing which aspects of it that I like to implement versus which ones don't work for me yet as I learn and grow, which is definitely not the high school or college that I went to to implement things like requizzes and retests. And it was hard for me to even start with this idea. Nobody else in my department was doing anything like this. And to be honest, as I was starting my career, I started my career right as Common Core was being implemented. So there was a ton of work in developing all the new curricula. I started in eighth grade and moved all the way up. I'm like, wait, you want me to make two tests, four tests, two quizzes, three quizzes, four? And you want me to give them to these kids and grade them and change their grades and all of the clerical work? But now that I'm nine years in, I'm ready for it. And I find that the students have such a better, I guess they feel better about themselves when they go in to take a quiz, when they know that there's going to be redemption. One thing that I do is if their test grade beats their quiz grade, I let the test grade replace the quiz grade in the grade book. If you can show growth by the time you get to the test, and that idea actually comes from college. If your grade on the final is better than your grade in the class, some professors will do something like that. Or 
if your grade is high enough, you don't even need to take the final or I don't know if anybody's still doing things like that. But that kind of way, it takes the stress of testing and quizzing and it takes it off of the grade and puts it more onto the learning. And however, I do understand that that practice might not be making my students college ready if their college professors are not following that, which probably they are not. However, it's something that I feel I need to do in order to focus on the learning that needs to happen. I think one of the things that we've been working really hard to do at the college level is to incorporate some of those practices as well to encourage learning and that it's about test taking and the testing effect as a way of remembering and learning and practicing rather than some moment in time that somehow reflects all learning that has ever occurred, which is not really relevant or accurate. And you would be happy to know that many people in our math department are doing mastery quizzing and mastery learning approaches where they allow students multiple attempts to demonstrate mastery. One of the things that I think is somewhat problematic for the transition of students from high school to college is that we don't have these kinds of conversations very often. They're not in place unless we go out of our way to talk to local high school teachers about what's going on in local schools and and vice versa, where high school teachers are asking us what's going on at the college level. Can you talk a little bit about how your Delhi experience evolved in ways that you could encourage others to have those same kinds of conversations? I believe it was somebody from SUNY Delhi reached out to the executive director of the New York State Master Teacher Program. If you haven't heard about it, it's a STEM initiative to retain teachers in math and science. And it's a four-year fellowship that you have to apply and interview and be selected to join. But it ends up creating a very strong network of teachers statewide that are actually affiliated with SUNY. Every region has a SUNY campus that they are affiliated with up here in the North Country, minus Plattsburgh. And since our program has moved more to an online format, we were able to all participate with SUNY Delhi through this conversation. And I think that just leads to more ideas for the future or to somebody who has an in with some SUNY people. I think we all do professional development. I do it as a high school teacher and you guys do it as professors, but then where can we find the middle ground that can maybe mesh some professional development and share some best practices between our two groups? Sounds like an excellent idea. That is a practice that I think we should do more of. One of the issues that we have is that in general, high schools provide a lot of support for students. And often some of that support comes from parents who help encourage students to be successful in school. And then all of a sudden people go away to college and sometimes it doesn't work quite as well. And we lose a lot of people. Do you have any suggestions on what perhaps colleges could do better to help retain more students? That's a great question. And I think as we grow through the years, you're noticing a lot more of shall I say, helicopter parents or parents who are very, very involved in their children's lives. And so much to the fact that they actually can become bulldozer parents and literally take roadblocks out of their children's way so that they never experience any kind of struggle. And that, of course, is not anything that me as a high school teacher or you guys as college faculty can do other than just encouraging parents to step back. Students should be very autonomous I think that if anything we're going to see out of this pandemic, another, I guess, silver lining is these students are becoming more autonomous. They have to when their parents are working and they're only going to school two days a week and they're responsible for their own learning the other three days a week. They're also learning 
skills like, do I care for online learning? So when I get to college, should I steer towards classes that are online or steer away from classes that are online? So these are definitely going to be skills. So you guys might want to look out for when you're screening students or as advisors. Hey, how did you do when you were fully remote? Were you able to get all of your work done? Did your mom have to come home and sit down with you and work with you? Or were you able to get up in the morning, eat your breakfast, and then get right started on your schoolwork? I make a joke to my seniors about this time of year that if they are still being woken up by their parents, they are not ready for college. You will be home by Christmas if your mother is still waking you up to get you in the shower and get to school on time. (laughs) Students are going to have a lot of free time when they get to college. Their lives are managed for 40 hours a week, an hour bus ride in and back. Somebody tells them when it's time to eat lunch, then they go right to sports practice and come back. They're so busy when they're in high school. And then when they get to college and they have class that are for 15 hours a week, that's a lot of extra time for these kids to have to manage. And then when they start to find out, oh, nobody's going to call my mom if I don't go to school. That's the kind of mentality that these kids are going to. And I ask my students often, what do you think is going to be one of your biggest struggles? Or what do you think is going to be a biggest struggle of your peers? And it is time management. These students are used to doing a lot of their work in school, either in the class, they're given class time to start assignments, to do assignments, or they have a study hall where somebody says, okay, get your books out, get to work. And now they're just going to go to class. They're going to learn for an hour, hour and a half, and then go back to their dorm and have to start studying on their own. And even that, just the idea of needing to study. A lot of students can very easily get through high school without studying, without ever learning how to study. They just are a good student. They know how to sit and behave. They learn well. They do their assignments. And that's enough. I was a victim of that. I was always above average just by doing exactly what is expected of me. And then when you get to the bigger pond and you become the smaller fish, that can cause a lot of struggle for students. That idea of time that's not managed, that they need to learn how to manage on their own. I think you're highlighting a lot of great themes here. We certainly experience as college faculty, but your students are right. Time management is the number one struggle of our college students. They already know that it's a problem. We know that it's a problem. High school teachers know it's a problem, but we don't actively necessarily all collaborate on finding solutions to that problem. We just expect overnight students are somehow magically going to have autonomy and know what to do with it. (laughs) And that's especially true for first-gen students who haven't had family members talk to them about those challenges and those issues and who don't have that sort of support. And suddenly they have all this free time and they don't have any tests until weeks away or months away. And they just have these big assignments to do. So they don't have anything they have to do right away. But one of the things that we know makes it worse is online instruction, because there's a lot of research. I did some about 17 or 18 years ago that found that freshmen and sophomores just did dramatically worse with online courses. And we had a guest on our podcast several months ago now who found the same thing in a much larger study that juniors and seniors and older individuals, if they've been successful in making it to that stage of college, they tend to be relatively successful in managing their time effectively. So online instruction is much more challenging for freshmen. And one of the things that I know many faculty are concerned about is the fact that all of our students coming in next year 
will have spent at least a year in some sort of remote or online instruction. And the quality of that varies quite a bit across school districts. And I think that is going to be a challenge we're going to need to address. Do you have any thoughts on how we can help students be better at this? You are definitely correct. There are going to be a lot of gaps to fill based on how students have received instruction and how much instruction. We were given guidance that perhaps we'd only get through 80% of our material. And as you know, at the end of the 2020 school year, some of the learning immediately stopped in mid-March with the do no harm idea of you can't do harm to any of their grades. Whatever their grade is when they left is what their grade needs to be. So we saw students who had very high averages that said, you know what, it's good enough. So I know you can't give me anything less than a 98. So I'm not doing anything for the rest of the year. And that was a very real situation that's not going to be reflected in a transcript that you receive as a college advisor or as a college applicant when these kids are applying to school. I'm hopeful that students could self-assess where they're at, that if a college is going to have a lot of remote opportunities and they are good at online learning, absolutely go there. That's for you. And if not, then that might not be for you. I think we can also refer back to an earlier podcast we did with Vijay Sathy and Kelly Hogan, who talked about the importance of structure in all of our classes, that providing students with clear directions, with giving them more expectations. And a couple of other podcasts that we had with Betsy Berry, she discussed the importance of sharing information about the time that's required for various tasks. So giving students more detailed instructions and giving them more guidance on how much time they should be expected to work on things perhaps may help. I completely agree. I remember the rule of thumb was a three credit level class would have about nine hours, the total amount of work, including class time for that class. So, and I try to drill this into my students' heads as a pre-calc and calc teacher that you're going to be doing a lot of work outside of this class, which is not what they're used to. They're used to, I'm going to go home, I'm going to do 15 minutes worth of homework, and it's going to be graded based on effort. So I get a free 100 in the grade book if I did it. And nobody's going to care if I did it correctly. I could do the whole thing wrong. I could copy from my friend. And there we go. I get the credit. And that's just not college readiness or career readiness for hopefully most careers. But I would love to see some kind of, even in high schools, and then have it trickle right up to college some kind of bridging from each course. Ninth grade, these are our expectations. Tenth grade, you get a little bit more strict restrictions. And then all of that being an idea of we're bridging the gap from 12th grade to college. And then as well as you guys looking back, college professors and faculty looking back and saying, okay, this is where they're at when they're coming to us. And so we can pick it up from here. Yeah, that ramping is so important and just acknowledging where students are at and meeting them where they're at and not having some false expectation of where we wish they were, right? Which is very different. And I think what John was talking about, like providing some time allotments and things, but just even providing students with a sample of what their outside of class time should just generally be looking like. Maybe you are spending three hours outside of class studying or six hours outside of class studying. But what do those six hours look like? What does studying look like for this class? What are the kinds of exercises that would be really helpful? And if faculty have a vision of what that should be, we just often don't communicate it. And often when faculty do, though, they communicate what worked for them, which is what had worked for their professors before them, 
which is not always what would work for a typical student. What do you mean? Highlighting, John? And repeated rereading and focusing on learning styles. But there's a lot of things out there that faculty may encourage students to do that is not really always consistent with evidence. And going back to your point earlier, Natalie, about providing the relevance of things, one of the problems I think that faculty have is we got into these things because we're just really interested in the questions of the discipline. And the things that interest us now are based on having studied the discipline for a long time. And it's a little harder often to connect with the types of things that would interest a student who's just coming out of high school or in a sophomore or junior position in college because they don't have that same network of concepts to make the topics that we find interesting as interesting to them. That's something I think we definitely need to work on. I know one thing that I always struggle with in the design classes that I teach is I'm constantly trying to get students to think about audiences other than themselves. But then when you start to put things in perspective, you realize they don't really know much beyond themselves. They know maybe what an audience younger than them might experience or have expectations of, but they have a really hard time envisioning what a professional world might be like because they just don't have any experience in it. So we often come to the table with so many assumptions that we think that they have, and they just don't have the life experience to match it. We've talked a little bit about how instruction was affected during a pandemic. How did your classes transition? I saw this, the pandemic, as a way to be able to spread my wings and try and implement some different teaching strategies that I had thought about, but I wasn't totally sure if I wanted to dive right in in one given year. And one of those ideas was the idea of a flipped classroom. I had never felt confident to be able to create a flipped classroom that I felt students would be responsible for, that being watching the videos at home and then us just working on problems together in class. And to be honest, that's pretty much what has happened. I have students who have to watch videos on the two days, three days that they're not here and they have to. And I've figured out now how to assess that they've watched the videos and to make sure that they are responsible for that learning. It's not totally flipped, but I do have to provide instruction to these students three days of the week that they're not around. And I did that in a couple of different ways for each one of my preps because I didn't want to get so solid in just one way was the way. And I wanted to try some things out. So for calculus, I teach calculus fully synchronous. My students who are at home, Google Meet live with the students that I have in class in front of me were able to talk about problems as a bigger class instead of just the five who are in front of me. And that's worked out quite well for us. Granted, class is at 10 o'clock, so it's not too super early for these students. So pre-calculus, I do kind of more high flex. They have the opportunity to come to the live session if they want to, or I do make videos for them to watch on their own. One thing that we had to keep in mind this year was that some of these students are responsible for younger siblings while parents are at work. So we needed to be a little bit more flexible in how we set up our classes. And when I had the conversation with my calculus students, they said, nope, we could totally do synchronous. And if they needed me to make a video, I can make them a video. And then Algebra 1, I do completely asynchronous. The videos are already set up. There's no live session. When they come in the next day or whatever day it follows watching the videos, I check and make sure that they watch their videos, give them a little bit of credit just for doing what they were supposed to do. And to be honest, I have become very, very graceful 
compared to how I ever was in the first seven and a half, eight years of teaching. My department very rarely ever accepts late work. Math is a sequential subject. You need to do the work today so that you know what's going on tomorrow in class. This year, I'm just happy it's getting done and getting done with integrity. So I've become so extremely graceful with students who are getting work done after due dates, right before the quarter ends. It's not great, but they are also learning a very important lesson in it's a lot easier if I just do a little bit every day instead of trying to cram it all in at the end of the semester or at the end of the quarter. So hopefully that idea can trickle up to college as well. It's not very easy to dig yourself out of a hole, especially in college. You mentioned with your recordings that you were verifying that they actually watch the videos. How do you do that? With my Algebra 1, the videos obviously match their note packet. They have guided notes that matches very nicely. So the next day I just come in, check. They're going to show me a front and back with all of the notes filled in. For pre-calculus, I feel like I shouldn't have to check their notes, that they should be responsible enough for that level to actually watch the videos. I did get a sense that they weren't watching the videos, mostly because I was bringing things up when they came to class and I had a lot of blank stares looking at me. So I started using a program called Edpuzzle. They have to sign into it with their Google account. Lots of teachers in my school use this and was able to see who was actually watching. And it was funny. I had a student come to me and he goes, I'm going to make a guess that one third of the kids are actually watching the videos. And as soon as I started counting up the number of students who actually watch the videos, it was about one third. So I gave a very stern talking to about what my expectations were in that they're not going to have the best understanding and knowledge if they're just practicing the homework assignments, that it needs to be the full package. Coming to class in whatever shape or form that looks like, be it coming to the live session or watching the videos, but all of it needs to be done in order to be successful in pre-calculus. Do you embed questions in the videos? I am just getting my feet wet with it. I just started using it. So no, I haven't gotten that far, but I did hear that you can and you can do a little checkup and it will not let you get through unless you do the questions. So is that something you guys have used? I haven't used Edpuzzle, but I have been using PlayPosit this year and I embed questions in it and it is required as part of the grade in my econometrics class and in my introductory microeconomics class. And I'm probably incorporating more classes as I go forward. But students actually have responded really positively. They discover that when they watch the videos, it's really helpful because when there was no grading involved or no questions, the level of use of the videos was dramatically lower. So this provides just a small incentive. It's a trivial part of their grade, but it's enough to induce them to watch them. So I've been really pleased with it. One advantage of Edpuzzle, though, is that it's free, as far as I understand. Well, I do have to pay for PlayPosit. Yep, it's free and we're a Google school, so they are able to sign right in and it worked. And it was easy for me to use. I could see all the students. I could see how much of it they watched. So that was pretty cool. That's great. As I'm hearing you talk about how your teaching has transitioned, it largely matches how faculty at the college level have also had to transition. So in some ways, we may have been brought together unexpectedly. (laughs) So there's a lot more college faculty also using a flipped classroom model and using more class time to solve problems and work on the more complicated things. Because often the video lectures or that kind of part of the material is foundational 
some of it might be memorization things, it might be terms and things like this. And then you put it into action in the classroom, you can have guidance and coaching. So what's really interesting is that the pandemic may have brought these two experiences together and that bridge might be more present than it has ever been before. Exactly. I used to think that there was no way for my students to learn if I wasn't the one who was telling them and showing them, if I wasn't up at the front of the board doing it with them, doing it for them, then they weren't going to learn. There was no way they can learn this on their own. And boy, was I ever wrong. Even though I could do 10 problems with them up at the board, whereas they could do three working together in a small group or in a pair, it's so much more valuable to listen to them have those conversations and to hear them explain these things in their own words Or what's very powerful, too, is when I hear my words come out of their mouth as they're explaining it to another student. So that's totally cool to hear that. And I think that's the direction of education. The prep work is more important than what the teacher role is in the classroom. So the role that the teacher plays planning and prepping for a lesson is so much more powerful than what the teacher's doing in the classroom at that time as far as leading instruction. That design experience is so powerful, just generally. And I think one of the things that I know I have always struggled with using a flipped classroom model, but I'm definitely getting better the more and more I do it, is really scaling back on how much can actually be done in class when students are working through problems and they're not having quite as much coaching. If you're really letting them struggle and fail and try again, that takes time. It's not like something that can happen automatically. So we might be used to going through more examples, but less examples, but more depth can be really powerful. And you're right, students explaining to other students is an amazing thing to see, but it also helps them articulate or realize where they don't understand, which is something that you don't necessarily recognize when someone's explaining something to you, because when someone explains it to you, of course, it seems obvious until you have to do it yourself. Absolutely. One of the things I was thinking about is I have to create a video on log transformations and econometrics tonight. And that reminded me of all that. Do you want one of mine? I can grab it right off that puzzle. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine that, though? Like sharing back and forth between high school and college and sharing resources? We should do more of this. Oh, absolutely. Why are we always reinventing the wheel for ourselves when there's so much already out there? When you first create a flipped classroom model, It's a lot of work creating those videos, maybe embedding some questions in them and doing that is a tremendous amount of work up front, but it's taking the stuff that's relatively easy for students to learn and shifting it outside of the classroom so that when students are in class, they're able to focus on the things they have the most trouble with. Because as Rebecca said, you can provide a really good lecture on how to do something, but if students haven't wrestled with it, they're not going to learn it as well. I know for many years, I was doing an awful lot of lecturing, and I've cut back to very, very little now, other than when I'm recording lectures. And I'm seeing students struggle with materials, but then when they are assessed on it, there's much more balance in their performance. Because before, there were always some students who would pick up on everything you did. People like you, Natalie, and people like those who are faculty. We were able to learn these stuff by listening to people tell us how to do it and figure it out on our own. But that doesn't work well for a lot of students. And when they're there explaining it to each other, they learn it much more deeply than they ever would by trying to do the more difficult parts on their own. Because in the traditional model, 
We'd give them the basics and show them how to do things. But the only time when they really got to apply that was either when they were working alone, doing homework, trying to struggle to solve some problems, or on a high-stakes exam. And those are times when perhaps they need the most support. And the flipped classroom model can really address that really nicely. Yep, I absolutely agree. We always end with the question, what's next? Which is a question that I think everyone in education is wondering. I think what's next is filling in the gaps. There's going to be a lot of gaps for a lot of years. And we keep saying, I can't wait till next year. I can't wait till it's back to normal. But pandemic aside, I don't think it's going to be normal for a long time. We're going to have a lot of students who need a lot of support for a lot of years. And it's going to affect me. And then it's going to affect college faculty as the students get up there, addressing where the gaps are. How can we fill them? How can we give these students the support that they need, even under just budgets that were being given that were cut in this past year or could be getting cut? We're going to need a lot of support from each other, from our colleagues, from our administrators, from the community, and and I think a lot of understanding. These students are going to need understanding. We're going to need understanding. I really like the underscoring of this empathy towards one another, both between faculty and teachers, as well as between students and teachers. I think that's a really nice note to end on. Thanks so much for sharing your insights, Natalie. I think many faculty will want to take the time and effort to reach out to some high school teachers and make some connections and start to figure out ways to bridge those gaps. Thank you so much for having me. This has been such a valuable experience, and I'm always grateful when anybody wants to listen to my opinion and share conversation with me. Well, it's great talking to you again. I very much enjoyed working with you when you were a student here, and it's nice to see just how successful you've been. And I suppose I should mention that this came about because one of my current students had listened to the podcast, had shared it with people on Facebook, and then she said, and you know, you really should invite one of my former teachers. And so we invited you. That is so awesome. I feel very honored that that student thought that I had something great to share. And it's been so great to be back in SUNY Oswego, among other Lakers. And of course, a professor who was a great mentor and led me down a path of success. Thank you. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast service. To continue the conversation, join us on our Tea for Teaching Facebook page. You can find show notes, transcripts, and other materials on tforteaching.com. Music by Michael Gary Brewer.